Well, if you have a Bible, you can open it to Luke, Luke, not Luke 11. We're done with Luke 11. Luke 13, that's where you can open to, and that's where we'll be this morning. In 1875, there was a man named Dr. Charles Berry. He was the pastor of St. George's Road Congregational Church in Bolton, England. It was a really big church. He had 1,200 different people that he pastored in that church, so it was kind of like a mega church uh, for that day. And uh, he had just moved into a new house, and he had this, um, this woman come to his door. And it was late afternoon, knocked on the door and said, uh, Pastor, I, I need you to come to my friend's bedside. She's dying, and she is asking for a pastor. And so, of course, he uh, went, and he got there, and he sat down at the woman's bedside, and he started to tell her about how Jesus was this great leader, and how Jesus provides a, a wonderful example for our lives. And she looked at the man and she said, Mister, I've lived an awful, sinful life. I don't need no example and I don't need no leader. I need a savior. Tell me how to get in. And so we told her of God's holiness and man's sin. And he told her about God's love and the gift of God's son. And the response that is required. And he was relaying the story to a colleague the next day. And they said, so what happened? And he said, she got in. This morning is a passage about getting in or not getting in. It's a passage about heaven and it's a passage about salvation. And it's all sparked by a controversial question that Jesus gets asked in verse 23 of chapter 13, which is, is the number of those being saved a small number? Is it few? And Jesus' response is not in line with modern evangelistic tactics. It's not in line with the easy believism of 21st century Christianity in America. Uh, they don't really know what to do with the way Jesus is talking here. But he is crystal clear. And it had some specific implications for the Jewish people listening to him and some general applications for us this morning. So um, let's pray and then we will read the passage. Father, we come to your word and we pray that you would give us the eyes to see it, to be able to understand it, and to be able to uh, believe it, give us the faith to believe this morning. And I pray, Lord, that uh, we would consider our own salvation this morning, that we would examine ourselves to be sure that we are in the faith, and that we would, um, this morning as we come to your word, uh, remember that we sit under its authority. We do not dictate to the word what it means, but we sit under its authority, and God tells us uh, how we are to live our lives, Lord. You speak to us, and you show us everything that we need for salvation and to live a life that is honoring to you. So I pray we would have hearts that are surrendered this morning, that are submissive this morning, that are yielded this morning, that are not prideful, um, that are humble before your word. And so give us those listening ears. I pray we would be slow to speak and, and slow to anger and quick to listen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 13, starting in verse 22, says, He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer to you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. 
But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. A piece of communion wafer stuck in my throat. Um, Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection are just months away at this point. He's headed toward the cross, which is exactly what verse 22 is telling us. He's still very much doing ministry, and he is teaching, and he is preaching, but he is moving toward Jerusalem. You see that in verse 22. So it's a reminder from Luke that we are on our way toward the cross, that Jesus is um, going forward to fulfill his mission. And while doing this ministry and and doing his teaching, uh, Jesus is asked a question that is pretty controversial, and it's made more controversial by how he answers it. But the question itself is very provocative. Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now, as he's getting closer to Jerusalem, we can be sure that the overwhelming majority of the people listening to him as he answers this question are Jewish. They would be familiar with the teachings of the Mishnah. The Mishnah was the man-made document that that compiled all the oral teachings of the Jewish religion. And it said this, All Israelites have a share in the world to come, for it is written, Thy people also shall be all righteous. They shall inherit the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. So in light of them understanding what the Mishnah said, let's reframe the question in how uh, it was asked. So uh, there's some intention behind the question here. Uh, This is what they're really asking Jesus. Jesus, we know God's going to save all the Jewish people. Because of the blood that's in their veins. It's Jewish blood. It's Abraham's blood. Is anybody else getting in? Or is it just the few of us in the world who can claim to be the children of Abraham? That's really the question that's being asked of Jesus here. Is it just the few Jewish people in the world? Or are there going to be others who are let into the kingdom? Now, here's what they would have expected Jesus to say. Yes, every Jewish person is going to get in. Every Jewish person without qualifications getting in. And a few Gentile stragglers who have converted. That's about it. In other words, they felt they had a certain spiritual and genetic privilege that they, uh, that they possessed just because they were Jewish. And they wanted Jesus to affirm this. They wanted Jesus to say, yeah, you're all in just because you are Jewish by blood. But his answer is actually going to be offensive to their premise, and he's not going to affirm their assumption. He's going to correct it. He doesn't answer this question like a philosopher. He answers it like a Lord. Jesus, is it, is it few, the people who are being saved? Is it a small number? Is it few? Is it just the Jewish people in the world? He answers with a command. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. So again, he he is addressing the presumptive attitude 
of the crowd, the attitude that Jewish privilege will get you through the doors of paradise. And he says, for many, and what he means is many Jews. There are many of you, many Jews, who will seek to enter and will not be able. This would have been surprising news to them. They had the law. They had the prophets. They had Abraham as their genetic father. They had the temple. How could any of them be left out? It didn't compute. It didn't make sense to them. Paul is confrontational in the book of Romans with the same sort of attitude. Romans 2, verse 17, he says, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a God to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, meaning the Gentiles, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourselves? For while you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. Paul's point and Jesus' point is you better do something with your Jewish privilege or it's all for nothing. If the law and the prophets and Abraham and the temple do not lead you to surrender your life to the Messiah and see a spiritual transformation as a result of that surrender, then all of those things who are pointing to the Messiah have gotten you nowhere. You end up in just as much darkness as the Gentile nations who were not privileged with all those things. And the way that Jesus answers the question tells us something about the sort of faith that you must have to be saved, whether you're Jewish or you are Gentile, non-Jewish. He doesn't respond to the question with a number. He doesn't say, well, actually, blank amount of people will be saved. Instead, he starts to talk about a certain quality that saving faith has. It is a faith that strives. Now, let's dig deeper into that, because if you read it wrongly, you might think, well, Jesus is saying here, you need to work for your salvation. That's not the case. And yet, the word strive does communicate something that's very important to us about the nature of saving faith. The English word for strive translates from the Greek word agonizomai, and we get our English word agonize from that Greek word. It means to fight. It means to contest like an athlete. So what is this fight? What is this striving? Is Jesus saying that you need to work hard to ensure that God will save you? Well, he can't mean that. Otherwise, he would be contradicting the perfect inspired word in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, which says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That couldn't be more plain. I was in Pittsburgh last weekend, and I was with um, a friend of mine. Uh, he, he actually attended church here last Sunday. He was my roommate in seminary. And we went out to get lunch before this conference that we were at started. It was uh, a Ligonier conference. So you had a bunch of Presbyterians and a few Baptists getting together to talk about theology for the weekend. And we're on our way to eat at DeBella's uh, Deli, which if you've ever been to the Midwest, you know what DeBella's is, and it's awesome. So we're on our way, and uh, we see these people with these big signs, these big poster boards out. 
And it looked like it started at creation and it went all throughout history. And we were like, well, we got to see what this is, you know. So we start walking up and we're looking at it. And these guys come up and start talking to us. And they're talking to us about the law and the prophets. And basically what they're telling us is that the message of Christianity got corrupted after Jesus left the earth. And that even as you read in the New Testament, you can see the corruption. And, and to make a long story short, they were a part of a cult. And, and, and they had this guy that they believed was the last great reformer and the last great prophet, and he lived in like 1948. But basically what he taught is you needed to take the Passover, continue to practice the Passover as a Christian, and practice foot washing, otherwise you can't go to heaven. And so I just, I listened to him for about 15 minutes, and I said, Where, where's the grace in this? Oh, well, it's very gracious that this is all God requires of you. And I said, I said no, that's not grace. And I pointed him to these verses and I said, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. I said, eating the Passover and foot washing, if that's required for salvation, that's works. That's not grace. That contradicts the word of God. By the way, if you ever talk to people from a cult uh, and you start to quote scripture to them, a lot of times what they do is go, well, have a nice day. And, and they kind of move you along because they realize this, their tactics aren't going to work. And so they pretty much shut down and moved us along. But we were brokenhearted. Because here are two people holding Bibles in their hands and yet they're still working so hard to try to save themselves. When the answers that they're looking for are in the book that are in their hand. It's not about their works. We're talking about the Protestant Reformation this month and remembering a bit about church history and where we came from. And there are those five truths that shaped the, the Protestant Reformation. And one of them is grace alone. Salvation is by grace alone. You don't come to God by your works. You come to God by a work, but it's His work. It's not your work. John 6 verse 44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 6 verse 65, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Matthew 11 verse 27, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Salvation is by the will of God to the glory of God. Now, that doesn't mean the sinner's will has nothing to do with it. There is a response to God's work that is required. When Paul was preaching on Mars Hill in Acts 17, he says this to the men there. He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Our response is to turn away from our sin, to repent, and to trust in the work of Christ. God sent His Son. The Son died on the cross in our place. He resurrected. He secured salvation for His people. The Spirit of God makes the heart alive and opens the sinner's eyes to these truths. The sinner repents. The sinner receives Christ. They're relying on all this work God has done. They're not relying on their own work. But Jesus does say strive. And the reason He says strive is He's speaking to the hard business of responding with repentance. Repentance is tough stuff. If you repent, you are turning from yourself, your selfish desires, your selfish ambition. 
You're denying yourself. And you're turning toward God in faith. If that was easy, then the whole world would do it. The whole world would not be living for its own pleasure. Go back to Luke 9, verse 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The world lives lives of self-fulfillment, gratifying the desires of the flesh. When the flesh says to a sinner, hey, we ought to do this thing, the sinner's response is, all right. The flesh says jump, the sinner goes, hey, how high? How high do you want me to jump? The flesh is the master. And a person who doesn't know the Lord lives to gratify the desires of the flesh. The gospel of Christ is not a gospel of self-fulfillment. It's a gospel of self-denial. It demands self-denial. It demands we crucify the flesh. We let go of our selfish goals. We let go of our selfish desires. We let go of our possessions, maybe even our, our lives. Because in nailing self to the cross, we gain life through the work of Christ. So when Jesus says to strive, He means we should deny ourselves. To turn our back on ourselves and turn to God in faith for the sake of seeking the the kingdom and knowing the King. And this is a narrow door. And, And the idea of a narrow door highlights the intensity of the struggle to deny the flesh. The door is a tight fit. If if you try to go through a very small door and you have a bunch of baggage on, that's not going to work out. right? As you're trying to go through the door, you're just going to be hitting the bags on the door frame and no matter how you turn, uh, you're, you're being impeded. And so what do you do? Well, you got to put it down. It's like when I come back from the grocery store. I always try to be a hero. You know what I mean? So do you. Right? I can get all this in one trip. You come in, the, the bags have like, you know, torn the skin off of your fingers. It's like, because you couldn't make two, you know, 30-foot trips to the car. So, uh, so you, you're trying to get all that in. Really what you need to do is just sit the bags down and, and go through, you know, with less baggage, right? And when it comes to the kingdom, we need to sit all of our selfish stuff down if we're going to squeeze through the door. This is what Jesus is saying. You need to sit down your glory seeking. You need to sit down your ego and your lust and your selfish desire and your greed, your ambition, your plans, your very lives. You need to forsake self to get through this door. A parallel text is found in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. The broad gate is not hard to squeeze through. Droves of people are walking down its path, they're barreling through it, and they carry all the baggage of their selfish ambition and their ego and their lust and their glory seeking and their greed and their plans. They can take it all with them. They can carry it all through that door. They'll fit because it's a broad gate. And they bought the lie that they are entitled to do whatever they want and there will be no consequences. Just walk through the gate, everything will be fine. They tend to every desire of the flesh and they fulfill it. And that's not hard. Fulfilling the flesh is not difficult. In fact, 
As I said, if you don't know the Lord, your sinful nature is still sinful. Sinning feels right. Sinning feels natural. Few are walking against the grain of the of, of the flesh and, and the evil world system in the footsteps of Christ. Few are willing to drop the baggage of their own selfish desires so they can walk on the narrow path and walk through the narrow gate. And this is why Jesus says, many will seek to enter it and they will not be able to. They will be carrying their bags and asking Jesus to open the door to them and their selfish sin and he will not open the door to them. Now, let me say something here, because I don't want the narrow door to sound like drudgery. Because we see this word strive, and it, it comes from a Greek word that we get our English word agonize from, and you're like, man, this, uh, salvation doesn't sound like a lot of fun. You know, th- there's this kind of myth that you could buy into where the broad and the broad gate are for people who really live life. And then they go to hell, and that's, te- that's terrible, and that's sad, but they really lived life. But for you as a Christian, you're going to get to go to heaven, but your life here is going to be terrible. No fun, no happiness, it's going to be horrible. That's not true. The broad path might be easy, but it doesn't just end in death, it's filled with death. And the people who walk on it keep looking at these things, these idols, these desires, um, these pleasures, and thinking these things will make me happy. But as they pursue these things, they just end up more broken. Because the idols cannot hold up the promises that they made. But in their spiritual blindness, they keep going down the path until they end up tragically going through the broad gate. The narrow path and the narrow gate may require a striving, but it's where real life and and real joy are found. Not just in heaven, but in this life. Along the narrow way, there is intimacy with Jesus. It's the joy of obeying Him and knowing that He is pleased. Christ honoring self-denial leads to true life. Elizabeth Elliot said it this way, the gate is narrow, but not the life. The gate opens out into the largeness of life. In Christ, there is joy-filled largeness of life. I actually think that that largeness of life is a great witness to a lost and dying world that keeps looking to broken things to fix their own brokenness, but they only end up in more brokenness. But if you faithfully live for Jesus in front of them and you show them the largeness of life, of a joy-filled life in Christ, it's going to speak volumes to them. They're going to see the peace of conscience we talked about before we came to the Lord's Supper in you, and they're going to go, I want that. They're not chasing all this stuff I'm chasing, and yet they have this joy that money can't buy. How do you get that? And you get to tell them about your Lord. Now, We've learned about the narrow door. What happens when the door shuts? And, and, and that's what verses 25-27 to are all about. These verses show us there's a time limit on God's offer of salvation. At some point, the master of the house rises and he shuts the door, like in verse 25. Jesus is talking about himself. He is the master of the house. And at some point, he's going to close the door and anyone who's outside will be outside of that door permanently no more invitations to the kingdom no more gospel calls and there's two things that seem to keep them out of the kingdom first of all they don't have a relationship with the master of the house 
At the end of verse 25, he says, I do not know where you come from. It'd be like if somebody knocked on your door this afternoon, like, hey, I'm going to come in. I'm going to stay there tonight. I'm sorry, I don't know you. I'm not answering the door. Right? This is where strangers stay. They stay on the outside of the door. They don't know him. They have no relational knowledge of him. Now, they're going to claim otherwise. What they're going to claim is familiarity. Hey, we ate and drank in your presence. We ate meals together. We heard your sermons. You taught in our streets. I mean, isn't this what the Jewish people will say about Jesus? They know Jesus. They went to weddings with Jesus. They went to funerals with Jesus. They broke bread with Jesus. They heard all of his sermons. Come on, Jesus, you know us. But the reality is, is that merely engaging with Jesus and being familiar with Jesus doesn't prove you have a relationship with Jesus. Even engaging in ministry with Jesus doesn't necessarily mean you have a relationship with Jesus. Matthew 7, go there again, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Familiarity does not equate to relationship. It's like, um, you know, I, I love uh, Lamar Jackson, plays for the Baltimore Ravens. Probably my favorite NFL player. I just enjoy watching that guy play. I watch Lamar Jackson almost every week during the football season. I've seen almost every game that he's played in. I love watching Lamar Jackson. But if I saw Lamar Jackson on the street and I walked up, I was like, Lamar! How's it going, man? He'd be like, I... I no idea who you are. You know what I mean? Probably his security would just, just back me away. It's like, you know, no fangirling here. No fangirl zone for you. So just back me away. I, I'm familiar with him, but I don't know him. I could, I could stand here this morning and I could get up here and tell you all the reasons I think he's a great football player and spend 20 minutes trying to convince you of that. But even engaging in some sort of proclamation about him still doesn't mean that I know him. And so you can be familiar with Jesus, you can be around Jesus, you can have proximity to Jesus, you can even do some, some activities that have Jesus' name on it. You could have a car at the trunk or treat, and, and you can help serve in the church, and, and you, know, you can um, have a bumper sticker uh, on your car that says you're a believer, and you could listen to some Christian music, and none of that actually means that you know Jesus. Which brings us to the second thing that keeps them out of the kingdom. They don't know him, but number two, there's no evidence of repentance in their lives. They ate meals with Jesus. They heard his teaching, but they never trusted him enough to forsake themselves and to repent and to follow him. And we know that's the case because he says, depart from me, all you workers of evil. And back in Matthew 7, verse 23, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. How do we know that they never surrendered to Christ? How do we know that they don't know Christ? We know because sin is the trademark of their lives. Listen to this. This is important for us to understand. True repentance brings about moral improvement. There's no way around that. True repentance brings about moral improvement. 
There are some things that improve as soon as you come to know Christ. Like you become a Christian and there are some things you just stop doing them. And then there are some things that you struggle with for a while. There are some things that it takes time to go to battle with. And then once you get victory in those areas and you're reading the word, the Lord is so faithful to point out new areas that you're struggling with. And he says, okay, now let's deal with this. You talk to a lot of Christians that are new to the faith. They're going to be struggling with, well, man, I'm trying to stop cussing and I'm trying to stop um, talking in ways that are immoral and that are unhealthy and that are, that are uh, hurtful to people. I'm trying to get my, my tongue under control. But if you talk to that same Christian 30 years later, they're probably not struggling with that anymore. They shouldn't be struggling with that anymore. But they might tell you, they're like, man, my ego. The Lord now has gotten under the exterior and he's getting down into the internal about my intentions and about my aspirations and about my ego and, and about my own glory, right? But, but the Lord is sanctifying us. When we repent of our sin, sanctification begins. And throughout your life, he is making you more and more like Jesus. Christians should be able to look at our lives and see a moral change. We should be able to see that God has given us new speech and new behaviors and new attitudes. The Old Testament actually prophesied that this is how New Testament believers would live. Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So what Ezekiel's prophesying there is you had a heart of stone. You know, a, a rock is a rock. Like a rock is, a, is a, a terrible pet. Like, you know, everybody who got a pet rock figured that out pretty quickly. It's like, this doesn't do anything. You can talk to it. You can pet it. You can give it a name. It's not going to do anything. It's a rock. And that's what we had. We had hearts that were rocks toward God. Stone hearts that did not respond to God, interact with God, love God, worship God, none of it. And he's taken out the heart of stone, he's given you a heart of flesh, and in this case, flesh is good, because, you know, your skin, it feels. Like, if you come up and, and, and you take a, a pin and you prick my finger with it, I'm going to feel it, because it's flesh. And so our heart now is, is alive toward God. We can feel God, we can know God, we can talk to God, we can respond to God, we can worship God, and His Spirit dwells in our hearts, and His Spirit causes us to walk in His statutes and makes us careful to obey His rules. If you have no real desire to walk in the statutes of, uh, of God and, and, and no real care about obeying His commands, why should you think you have the Holy Spirit in you? Why should you think you have a new heart? Why should you think you have truly repented? The Jewish people were saying, Jesus, you know us. You, you, you've eaten with us. We, we've listened to you teach. We're Abraham's kids. We're recipients of the law. We are the temple attenders. We heard the prophets. We know you. And Jesus is saying nothing about how you live would indicate that you've turned from sin and self in order to know me. And if you don't know me, you have no part in my kingdom. My dad's side of the family is half Irish, half English. My mom's side is full-blown Irish. That means I'm super Gentile, okay? I would guess most of you are the same, but not all of you. So what 
do Jesus' words to this group of Jewish people 2,000 years ago have to do with a Gentile like me or a Gentile like you? Well, while it may have been specifically for them, understand there's a general principle that can be applied to all of us here. To presume on God's salvation for any reason other than the blood of Christ is futile and dangerous. To think, to assume that you are in the kingdom for any reason outside of the work of Christ, the blood of Christ, the death and the resurrection of Christ is futile and dangerous. Now, many American Christians might presume upon God's salvation under false pretenses, and and here's why. I'm going to give you a quote from John MacArthur. He says, Contemporary Christians have been conditioned to believe that because they recited a prayer, signed on a dotted line, walked an aisle, or had some other experience, they are saved and should never question their salvation. What misguided thinking that is. Scripture encourages us to examine ourselves to determine if we are in the faith. The Bible teaches clearly that the evidence of God's work in a life is the inevitable fruit of transformed behavior. Faith that does not result in righteous living is dead and cannot save. What is is John MacArthur saying here? He's saying that many people were told, if you just pray this prayer and you just walk this aisle, you'll be saved, and you can go back to your life and you can keep on living the way you want to live. And, and you can believe that you're saved because you performed this ritual, therefore God must let you into heaven. It's not biblical Christianity. The New Testament knows nothing of that sort of saving faith. It would not classify that as saving faith. At no point does it. It's not remotely biblical. This idea that you repeat a prayer and then you go live however you want to live, and that one day you show up, after you die, because it's appointed for all men to die once and then face judgment, you stand before God in judgment, and he goes, I don't know you, I really don't know anything about you, but you did pray that prayer with that preacher that time, and so come on in. It doesn't work that way. I truly believe one of the reasons we have bushels of people walking around in the West today thinking that they are going to heaven, even though there's nothing in their lives that distinguishes them from their unbelieving friends, is that they had a gospel preached to them that had no repentance in it. Kevin DeYoung calls repentance the missing word in our modern gospel. I'm beautiful in my way because God makes no mistakes. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. That's Lady Gaga. Unfortunately, that's too much of what our modern gospel sounds like. Become a better you, right? You have nothing to prove because you're already approved. Those are a couple of slogans from two of the most popular pastors in America of thousands of people attending their churches. And the message is you're fine just how you are. You don't need to change, you don't need to strive. Don't let anybody tell you you're not special. It's a gospel that doesn't ask anything of the listener. No more than Lady Gaga does. I don't know, maybe she asks more. Here's Kevin DeYoung again. He says, if the call to repentance is a necessary part of faithful gospel preaching, then maybe we don't have as much of it as we think. The summons to turn from sin, die to self, and turn to Christ is missing from prosperity preachers, from preachers in step with the sexual revolution, and from not a few gospel-centered preachers too. 
It's certainly missing from most of our worship services that long ago did away with the deliberate confession of sin. I'm not trying to say that every American evangelical church is off track, and I'm not trying to say every preacher ought to spend every Sunday morning finger-wagging and scolding. You know that's not what I do. What I'm saying is if you leave repentance out of the gospel, you leave out the expectation that the gospel brings about life change. A gospel that requires change is a harder gospel to preach, maybe a harder gospel to believe, but it's the only gospel. We should loathe the idea that we would be a church that would portray Jesus simply as someone you can give lip service to and be familiar with, and that's enough. Pacify Him with a a tip of the cap, with a repeated prayer, with a walked aisle. He'll let you in. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. And here He is saying, at some point I shut the door, and if you're on the outside, it's because your life is filled with sin, and that sin is a proof that I don't have a relationship with you. And if you're not a believer this morning, I I pray that beckons you to repent. And if you are a believer, I pray that it beckons you to make sure that repentance is a part of the gospel you preach. Because if you're a believer, it's definitely a part of the gospel that saved you. One of our brothers who's passed away this year, and we've, we've buried too many people this year, but one of our brothers that passed away this year, Charles Martin, any time I use the R word in a sermon, okay, any time I use the word repent, he'd come out those doors and he'd say, Pastor, thank you for talking about repentance. Thank you. He said, too many people don't talk about repentance. Charles knew. Charles understood. This is the gospel. Repent and believe. Now, let's close up um, this morning here as we get into verses 28 through 30. Jesus says, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's talking about where you go if you are shut outside of the kingdom. He's talking about hell here. It's a brutal picture. We're going to talk more about hell next week. So I'm not going to go too deep this week, but I do want to deal with the words that he uses. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. There will be weeping in hell because there will be immense amounts of sorrow in hell. In hell you are separated from everything that is good, And you can imagine that separation from God and all goodness would bring about intense sorrow. I can't hardly put words to what that sort of sorrow would feel like and to know that you will endure it for an eternity. And gnashing of teeth. You gnash your teeth when you're angry. So there will be both anger and sorrow. The Jewish people who are left out of the kingdom will be sorrowful and will be angry because they will see Abraham and they will see Isaac and they will see Jacob and all the prophets of the kingdom, but they are outside. They assumed they would have the same eternal destination as the patriarchs and the prophets. And they find out otherwise, and it's going to bring about intense sadness and rage in them. Rage toward who? Toward God. Because they're going to say, this isn't fair. Maybe they'll spend eternity accusing him of not keeping his promises because they thought that he would look at their blood and not at their hearts. They're going to be angry. I don't know about you, but being uh, for an eternity, just being filled with anger and with sorrow sounds horrible. 
It sounds miserable. It sounds horrifying. But Jesus isn't done here. Look what he says in verses 29 and 30. He says, People will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. Unbelieving Israel will be cast out. But believing Gentiles will be brought in. That's who he's talking about when he says east and west and north and south. He's talking about Gentiles. He's talking about the nations. This was unheard of to a Jewish person. The patriarchs, the prophets, and a bunch of no-name Gentiles in the kingdom? Like, how could this be? But understand, this was always God's plan to create one people for himself, one church, one body. And in Christ, there is now no distinction. Salvation is to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. But at the Lord's table, the first is last and the last are first. So there are some Gentiles who will enter in before unbelieving Jews that are listening to Jesus, which is quite a reversal. But regardless, the message is clear. Jewish or Gentile, repent and believe doesn't matter if you come in before or after another just come and at his table we all recline as abraham's children by faith heirs according to god's promises deny yourself repent and believe and then preach the one true gospel that calls on others to do the same that's how people get in let's pray Father, I thank you for the gospel this morning. I thank you for the good news, the message. We would be utterly hopeless without it. And I thank you that you have not left us wondering how to respond to the glory of who you are and the glory of what you have done to save us. You have told us what to do. When the 3,000 were cut to the heart at Pentecost, they cried out to Peter, what shall we do? The answer was repent. Be baptized. And so we need to repent of our sin and we need to put our faith in you. And if, if someone hasn't done that this morning, Lord, I pray they would. And I, I pray that they would seriously consider the idea of an eternity filled with anger and sorrow. And that they would say in their own hearts that myself, my selfish desires, my ambitions, my own glory, all the things that I want, all the things my sinful heart wants, they are nothing. They are not worth it. It's going to end in this destruction. That they would repent, and that they would repent in faith in you, and that they would find the true life that they desire. True life that will extend beyond this earth into eternity because the opposite of anger and sorrow will be found in heaven in your presence lord there will be joy and there will be rejoicing and happiness and it will last forever it's so worth it to strive now to let go of goods and, and kindred and self now it's worth it and i pray lord we would count the cost in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you are here this morning and you don't know the Lord, uh, I want to just direct you toward um, 
connect at seafordbaptist.com. That's an email. You can text or you can email that email, connect at seafordbaptist.com. Let us know you want to know more about becoming a Christian or maybe you just want to know more about joining our church or whatever. If you want to respond to this message today and you want to talk to one of our pastors as you do it, just uh, contact us there at connect at seafordbaptist.com. But myself and Pastor David and Pastor Ben will be around after the service. We would love to talk to you as well. Let's stand together and sing this morning. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, holy, holy is He. Sing a new song to Him who sits on heaven's mercy seat. Yes. 
At this time, we're going to close in prayer and pray for our offering as well. Um, and, and for our offering, you, know, you can give you know, here in person. We have a drop box that's you know, right there in front of me. Uh, you can also give online uh, if you'd like to do it that way. You can go to SeafordBaptist.com slash giving and, and give that way. But we're going to go ahead. We're going to pray for our offering and, and close in prayer as well. Let's pray. And dear God, as, as we come uh, to this time in the service where, where we do give our offering, God, we, God, we want to lift that up to you. God, we pray that you bless our offering. Um, we know that there are you know, there's so many ministries right here in this church, of course, that, that our offering goes to. But, you know, there are, are ministries, um, you know, all over the place that, you know, that, that money from our offering, you know, goes to help support. And so, God, we pray that, that you bless that, God, that you are at work through that offering, that people, um, through those ministries that, that the, our offering goes to, that people come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And God... You know, as we leave today, God, we thank you so much for your grace. You know, we, we, we thank you that, you know, that salvation is not based on our works because, you know, we know we see in Scripture time and time again, we see in our own lives, if, you know, if our salvation was based on our, our, our own abilities, on our own works, God, we would be without hope. Like, so, God, we thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And, God, we pray that you help our lives to be marked by repentance and belief. And God, as that happens in our lives, as you shape us, as we grow in our walk with you, God, we pray that you help us to, to lift each other up in our congregation, to point each other to you, to grow together. And God, we pray that you also help us to go out into our communities or into our, our families or into our, our, our friend groups to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Because God, we know that we live in a world that is lost and is dying, that is in need of a Savior. God, we praise you that we know that Savior, that we know Jesus Christ, and we pray that you help us to go out, share the word, and we pray that you help there to be fruit in our lives as we live for you. And we pray that you help us to truly be your workmanship. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all so much for worshiping with us this morning.